take our Bibles and turn back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, where last week Peter was continuing to emphasize this theme about becoming a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. And we had that challenging word about living submissively, and he gave examples from our marriages and within the body of Christ, the church, and how uh, he was answering kind of the question, how do we live as a Christian in this world? How do we become and continue to be people of spiritual maturity and influence? And last week we saw that in terms of how we talk and how we interact with each other and whether we have a gentle and quiet spirit and kind of a sacrificial attitude. And that leads us right into this next passage. I want a real short introduction this morning. Chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10 because we didn't really finish that section last week. And then we'll go down to verse 22. So... Thank you for bringing your Bibles. Let's get papers and pens out as the Lord teaches us this morning. And um, let's read his text. For now, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. But the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. That's kind of a reference back to the first part of the chapter we talked about last week. Keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what's right rather than for doing what's wrong. For Christ also died for sins once and for all. We just celebrated that at the table. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Having put to death in the flesh, he, he was made alive in the spirit which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. And the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Now, Remember, Peter is writing to a group of believers who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, and they're starting to be opposed. They're starting to um, be uh, hit kind of personally in terms of uh, their faith and in terms of what they believe. As the gospel spread throughout the world, it was received by many, but it was also increasingly uh, facing hostility. And there was a real divide as it spread out from Israel into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth as it got into the Roman Empire, as it got into Asia Minor, as it started to spread east uh, into what is now China. There was hostility that was raised because people did not want to hear uh, about what Jesus had done. It's hard to understand why people don't respond to the fact that God has intervened in our history, and has offered to save us. It's, 
it's hard to understand why people don't like that and why they don't want that for their lives. But the human heart is hard and the human heart is full of sin. And there are times when we face people who resent us for what we believe, people who, who are not um, friendly, people who, who have hostility toward us because of what we believe. Maybe we didn't do anything wrong. Maybe we didn't say a word, but they know. They know we go to church. They know we're a believer. They see us carrying a Bible. They see us praying at lunch. Uh, they hear us talk uh, about the Lord in some way. And, and they, they're harsh toward us. They, they shun us or they talk about us. What do we do in those times? Because that's what these people are facing. They're trying to live their lives. They're trying to stand for the Lord. They're trying to spread the gospel. And yet, um, they have people that are, that are reacting against them. And I don't know if word gets back to Peter. I don't know if that's why he addresses this. But for some reason, Peter's led by the Lord to write to these people who are scattered and are being persecuted and to say, here's what's happening and here's why and here's how you deal with it. Passage says that we're going to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now that, uh, you know, when we do something wrong and we're disciplined for it, we understand there's a consequence. There's a, there's a suffering aspect to it. But, but here Peter's saying, you haven't necessarily done anything wrong. All you have done is aligned yourselves with the Lord. And, and for some reason, and I'm going to explain why, he says, you are suffering because of that. But he says, I don't want that to discourage you. I don't want that to dishearten you. I don't want you to fall away from what you're doing because of that. Instead, I want you to, as they say, ramp it up. I want you to be more on fire for the Lord. I want you to be more passionate about the Lord because of this. You would think if we do the right thing that we would be everybody's friend, that nobody would be bothered. If we live morally and have high standards and we're doing good to people, we're loving people and sacrificing for people, you would think everybody would be okay with that. But, but they're not. In fact, they resent it. And Peter says here, and I want to really hone in on one phrase this morning. Peter says here that we need to, and this is in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Peter says no matter what happens, whether people are for you or against you, whether people love the Lord with you or hate the Lord because of you, that we need to never stop being zealots for the Lord. Now, a zealot is a person who is driven by conviction and by passion, willing to fight to the end, willing even to the point of death to commit to their convictions because they believe it so strongly. This is how they recruit suicide bombers in some of the Middle Eastern countries. From an early age, they get it ingrained into their head that they're fighting for something. They, they train them in their religion. And they teach them from an early age, don't be afraid to die for your faith. They're misguided in their beliefs. They're misguided in what they understand. But we, but we can't doubt their zeal. They, they worship a God in a way that doesn't give them any spiritual fulfillment. They worship the wrong thing. And yet they are so deeply passionate about it that they're willing even to strap a bomb around their chest and to set it off in a crowd of people. Now, when we look at ourselves, when we look at the Christian church in 2013, I don't think we see necessarily that kind of zeal. And yet, think about what we just celebrated. We just celebrated the table of the Lord, Jesus, who went to the cross when he didn't have to, he didn't deserve to, 
he, he was holy, and yet he took all our sins upon himself, and he went to the cross with joy. He didn't go dragging his feet. He didn't go thinking, I can't believe I've got to do this. He went with joy and with passion and with zeal. He was zealous as he hung on the cross, even though he was suffering agony beyond anything we can understand. Not from the physical pain, but from the spiritual pain. Now, we worship that God. We worship the one who hung on a cross for us and then rose again and defeated sin and death. So we are called to so much greater of a passion, so much greater of a zeal for the living God. And he says to us here in verse 13, be zealous for doing good. The best way to offset temptation is to be zealous for doing good. The best way to offset cultural influences that want to drag us down is to be zealous for doing good. The best way to offset our old self and those instincts that we still have that are part of our humanity is to be zealous for doing good. Because when we're not zealous, we're weak. When we're not passionate, we feel overwhelmed. And this is so vitally important for us to get. It's vitally important for teenagers to understand this. Because when you get to college, you may not have this support system. You may not have a bunch of people around you that love you and pray for you and care for you and want to disciple you and will encourage you nonstop. You get to college and you're on your own. Even at a Christian college like I went to, many people not living for the Lord like they should. And that's where your faith comes to a crucible. That's why 80% of teenagers, when they leave for college, never come back to the church. Teenagers, you've got to be zealous for this now. And adults, our responsibility is to be an example of this kind of holiness and this kind of passion for the Lord. Now, for people that are called, look back at the verse, to do what is good, it would seem like that would make our lives easier. That people would love to be around us. That if we're doing good for them, that it would be a slam dunk. People would say, The world's cruel, but you're going to treat me with love and kindness and mercy? Absolutely. But the text is telling us that being zealous for doing good can elicit some very negative responses because we're doing it to please and honor the Lord. And there are going to be a lot of people that do not like us because we love Him. They see the evidence of transformation in our lives and they see us dying to self because that's what we should be doing. And they see us separating ourselves from the influence of the world, and they strongly resent it. Maybe they think it's a big show that we're trying to show off and say, well, look how holy I am. I'm holier than you. And they resent that. I don't think it's true, but maybe that's how they view it. Or maybe they just hate the fact that we are taking a stand for the Lord. Wouldn't that be great if we have a lot of people that don't like us because we're living such a sanctified life, because we are so holy Not for ourselves, but for the Lord. So holy in our conduct and so separated from the influence of the world that people say, I can't stand you because you're so different. That actually would be a wonderful thing. But we're so so driven by the need to please people and to be accepted that that's hard for us. But Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. If they see me and you, if they see a reflection of my life and your life, I'm telling you right now, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised when it happened. 
especially as the world becomes more in love with sin and it becomes more tolerant of what used to be reprehensible but now is mainstream. It will bother people. I'm telling you now, it will bother people when we live by the Bible. It will bother people that we take a stand against their lifestyle because we follow the Word of God. It's not like we're sitting there going, oh, look at you. There are some churches that do that and the Lord will deal with them. We stand for the Word of God. The Word of God speaks about how we're supposed to live. And we may not even say a word. It may just be that you carry your Bible at work or you're reading it at lunchtime and somebody looks at you and says, I can't stand that person's conviction. Just because you love the Word of God. We're just trying to live by the whole counsel of God and tell people about His love and His mercy, but they get angry. It's hard to be a zealot sometimes. It's hard to stand for the Lord. People, Peter describes, look at verse 14, the type of opposition that we're going to face. We'll look at that in a moment, but look at his encouragement in verse 14 before we do. He says, even if you end up suffering in some way for the sake of righteousness, the Lord's going to use it as a blessing. If you're, if you're zealous for doing what is good and your heart is in the right place, you're not doing it to show off, or you're not doing it uh, to get people to notice you, but if you're zealous for doing good and your heart's in the right place and people hate you for it, the Lord will turn that. He'll turn their opposition and their hatred for good. And what is meant for evil, He will use for good. And He'll use it to cause us to love Him more and to trust Him more and to become more zealous about the truth because we see how frantically the enemy fights it. The enemy's got a strong foothold right now in the world, but he doesn't have a complete foothold. And anytime he sees the word being preached, and anytime he sees a believer living by it, and anytime he sees somebody talking about their faith and witnessing and sharing with somebody about the goodness of the Lord, he frantically fights it because he wants complete control. Now, God says, when that happens, look at verse 14, I'm pleased because now you understand my son. That, that table you just celebrated, now you'll know what it was like for him to suffer needlessly, to be ridiculed and reviled by the people that he created, to be spit on and slapped and tortured and whipped and to get a mock crown of thorns on his head and to go to a cross. You'll know what it's feel like. Oh, you won't know to the fullest extent, but you'll identify with him. And when you identify with him, it'll make you want to live like him. And that's the goal of our faith. To live like Christ. To be like Christ. One of the ways that will happen, and we'll know it's happening, is if people don't like us because we look too much like Jesus. Don't you want that to be true of your life? That, that, that people don't like me because I look too much like Jesus. Oh, that that would be the biggest problem that we would face as believers and as a church is that the world hates us because we love the Lord so much. If that was my biggest problem today, I would be so blessed. But look at what Peter says. He says, you're going to face this kind of opposition. Verses 14 to 16. You're going to suffer for the sake of righteousness. You're going to be intimidated and face trouble. You're going to be put on the defensive as you defend your faith. You're going to get slandered. You may even have your good behavior reviled. And as I looked through that list, I thought that's enough to kind of discourage us, isn't it? I mean, why do, the, why do the people who get to sin get to have all the fun? Why do they get to get away with it? 
If Christians say a word about their behavior, if we use the word of God and say, well, you know, lovingly here, this is what the word of God says about how we're supposed to live and, and about sin. People accuse us and they say, well, well, well we're, we're so critical and we're so judgmental and, and, and we're not allowed to do that and we're intolerant. And yet, when we hold our Bible and say, well, okay, if you don't want to hear what we have to say, that's fine. But, but then they look at us and they say, well, we're, we're going to rip you. And they're allowed to rip us, but we're not allowed to say anything even in love. It doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem like there's an, there's an even balance as they cry out for tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And yet, when we say a word about our faith, we're, we're just criticized as intolerant and they're intolerant toward us. Well, it wasn't fair for Jesus to die on the cross. That's more of knowing what he's gone through. And if we live, experience this reaction to our sanctified lives, we're just drawing closer to him. We get to experience the surpassing greatness of his presence and the help and sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, look at the end of the verse. End of verse 14. He says, don't fear the attempts to intimidate you. Don't be troubled by it. Don't be afraid if someone's going after you for your faith. Maybe it's a spouse that's resentful toward you because you trust the Lord. Or maybe it's a family member that you have constant conflict with. Maybe they argue with you and yell at you and treat you like dirt because of what you believe. Or maybe it's your boss who's angry with you because you want to read your Bible at lunchtime. Or maybe it's a coworker that is resentful that you talk about the Lord and you pray. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's, I don't know who it was. It doesn't really matter. But whoever it is, and as discouraging as that it is, don't let it defeat you or hinder your maturity and your expression of your zeal. Why? Because if we're suffering for the Lord and taking a stand for Him and defending Him, there's no way the Lord's going to hang us out to dry. As we stand for the Lord, as we live for the Lord, as we're zealous for the Lord, God's not going to stand back and say, well, let's see how you do. He's going to be right there in with us, defending us and helping us. He never leaves or forsake us. Think about that word never because it is so critical. God never leaves or forsakes us. Even when we're in complete rebellion and sin, if he gets, if we get to that place, he doesn't walk away. He stays there and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to show grace that's sufficient to you. So if we're zealous for him, we can be absolutely sure that he will be zealous for us. But how do we know that? Look back at the promise of verse 12. It says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. Can we fathom? I mean, really look at that sentence now. Can we fathom how awesome that last part is? It's enough that the Lord's watching over us and protecting us and helping us. But the fact that he's attentive to our prayers is absolutely incredible. And it goes without saying that that, that should, should give us a greater propensity, an expo- exponentially higher propensity to call in his name because he attends to our prayers. What a serious miscalculation it is when we don't pray. Because it is so valuable to him and it is so valuable to us. 
He loves it when we call on, our na- on His name. He comes near to us when we call on His name. He has provided complete access to call on His name. And He says, this is so valuable because when you call, I'm attentive to it. It's not like I'm just going, oh yeah, Rhodes is talking again. What, what's he saying? Is he blathering on about that thing? No, God goes, what did you say? You know, as a parent, when your kid's asking questions, and you're just like, how many questions are you going to ask? Don't ask me about a video game again. Please, I beg you, don't ever say the words of that video game again. I can't take it. And we kind of, come on now, parents, right? Kind of tune out a little bit. We're acting like we're interested. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, uh-huh. God never does that. When we call, he comes right in and listens. One of the saddest and most sobering verses in the Bible is you don't have because you don't ask. That's that's not about getting a request answered. Let's not be that materialistic in our thinking. That is about missing the amazing opportunity to enter into the presence of the Lord and be carefully heard by Him. Now look at the next phrase. The verse says that the face of the Lord is either against us or toward us. There's no middle ground. He's either against us or toward us. And the qualifier is being righteous, which doesn't mean praying a prayer or attending church. The word righteous there means completely conformed to God. We touched on this theme at camp. We talked about being wholehearted for the Lord. It means that every aspect of our thoughts, actions, and intents is fully aligned with Him. That we are taking every thought captive from sin And that we are only thinking about what is pure and holy and right and lovely and just. Being wholehearted, being zealous, being righteous, as the verse uh, describes it here, is that every action is righteous. Every action has the purpose of reflecting Christ and honoring Him. That every intent of our heart is either to build up the believers, to uh, to, to walk in maturity... And or it is to show unbelievers the love of Christ. And it is done without hesitation. It's done without restraint. It's done without resentment. It's not by obligation. It is an act of loving the Lord and being zealous for the Lord. Now, he says the face of the Lord is against those who don't live that way. But the face of the Lord is toward those who do. So he tells us this morning, be zealous Of living that way. Now some of you have different versions. If you have a King James Bible. It says to be followers of him. The NIV says. If you are eager to do good. Those descriptions. Really don't capture the full essence of the meaning here. Being a follower of the Lord. Is a big word in the Christian world. But it allows us a lot of latitude to drift spiritually. Remember many people. Followed the Lord day after day as they walked around Galilee. It was like Jesus was a live Twitter feed. What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? I got to be there for it. And they were following him. But as soon as he headed toward the cross, they forsook him. As soon as it got difficult and challenging and life changing and unpopular and sacrificial, they said, no, we can't have any part of that. Most people are eager to do what's good and right. The average person that we interact with every day really is trying to do the right thing. Most people aren't trying to do what's wrong. They're trying to do what's right. 
That's why I wrote, he says, I'm a good person. But, but that's not being holy. Being eager to do what's right is not equivalent to being holy. You start pulling out the Bible and saying, well, this is what the Bible says. People say, oh, wait a second, you're going to use that? It's kind of old, isn't it? It's kind of out of date. I don't know. It's, it's not really current. And God, if he exists, he can't expect us to possibly live that way, right? That's, that's a convenient religion. That's not zeal. Look at how verse 11 describes it. If you desire life, you must turn away from evil. That word must is non-negotiable. It means there's no alternative, no other option. It means to avoid and shun sin. If we want to be zealous to do good in the middle of this culture, we have to reject and avoid sin when it comes around trying to bring us back into our old life that has no life. We need to recoil and say, I will not be part of that. And then the Spirit, verse 15, says, here's how you do it. You sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I want to break that up just for the next two minutes. What does that mean? There are three components to this phrase. First, we're to sanctify Christ. How do we do that? He's already holy. God's already perfect. So, so, so how do we sanctify Him? Well, the phrase means purify and consecrate yourself as an act of reverence toward Him. In other words, sanctify Christ. Prove that you love Him. Prove that you're revered for Him. Prove that you're awed by His mercy in your life by being holy. Then He says, sanctify Christ as Lord, not just as your Savior. A lot of people find it convenient to say, well, I'll trust in Christ and I'll go to heaven. But He says, That's okay, that'll get you into heaven, but that's not why I died. I died so that I would be your Lord. See, the people of Israel loved the perks, right? God got us out of Egypt, He gets us through the wilderness, we get to go to the promised land, this is great. He defeats our enemies at Jericho and at Ai, and this is good. We've got milk and honey and fruit, and God's blessed us. But when Jesus said, when God said, I want to be your Lord, they said, nope. No, give us the perks. But don't have any expectations. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord. Your life is to be set apart for Him. Sanctifying Him as Lord is the expected and logical expectation of our faith. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is reasonable. So we're called to sanctify Him. We're called to sanctify Him as Lord. Third, look at We're supposed to sanctify Christ as Lord. Tell me the next three words. Come on, you can do better. In your hearts. At family camp, we studied the first day about the need to guard our hearts. We even gave ourselves a little exercise called a spiritual EKG. The heart is key because Scripture defines it as the whole of our being, what controls our thinking and our beliefs and our actions. Notice that Peter says, sanctify Christ in your hearts, not just in your mind. Why? Because the mind can be talked into sin. And the mind can be talked out of doing what's right. The mind is easily swayed. It, it justifies and rationalizes all too quickly. But when there is conviction and zeal in our hearts, that means that we are totally convinced, listen now, that holy sanctification is the only option. And we will not be swayed by anyone or anything. 
Are you at that place in your life where you will not be swayed by anybody about what you believe about Jesus Christ and you will not be swayed by anybody that living by the word of God and walking in holiness is the only option. Because he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why do we need to do that? Look at the next phrase and we're going to pray. He says, because we need to be ready at any time to gently but confidently make it offense of our faith to anyone who asks. Paul's talking about apologetic here. An apologetic is being able to rationally and logically defend and support your faith and your theology. Now that word frightens a lot of Christians, but it doesn't have to. Because God says we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. He has called us to work. The responsibility that he gave us when Christ left is go into the world and talk about my gospel and make disciples. That's your job. That's my job. That is the thing that he has given us as an assignment. So we can sit there and say, well, that's a tough job. I don't think I'm able to do that. I'll depend on missionaries or pastors or or a more mature Christian to do that. No, we don't have that out. Study to show yourself approved because you're a worker and you don't want to be ashamed when somebody says, what is it that you believe? Can you explain it to me? We don't want to say, let me go get somebody else that can explain it. We want to say, you know what, I've studied it and I believe it and it's in my heart and I've sanctified Christ as Lord in my heart. So I want to tell you about it. I may not know every verse and I may not know exactly how to walk through it, but I tell you, I believe it and I can tell you about it and I can tell you about my own experience. And if we can't do that, it's not God's fault and we can't blame the uh, place to blame or responsibility on the church or anybody else. It is incumbent on each of us to know the word and to be able to explain it. And at the very, very basis is to be able to walk someone through the gospel. Because people don't know. The Lord showed me evidence of this this morning as I was walking out to the car and Matthew had gotten ready and he was out there bouncing the basketball. You never know what kids are going to ask, right? We didn't have really any conversation other than I made him egos. And I walk out and he's bouncing the ball and he says, Dad... What about people whose families don't love Jesus? How do they know about God? Seven, playing basketball, eight o'clock Sunday morning. I said, well, you have a nice heritage, first of all. You've got family that loves the Lord, that's told you about the Lord. He says, yeah, but, but what if somebody, if, if their dad doesn't love the Lord, how do they find out? I thought that's exactly what we're studying this morning. There are many people that were not raised as believers. There are many people that that haven't had it explained to them, that don't have the heritage. I bet if we raised hands, in fact, I want to do it. How many of you did not get raised in a Christian home? Can I see your hands? It's about half of you. So how do we know? How is it explained to us? We are called to be able to make a confident defense 
at any time and to give an apologetic of our faith. I saw a Facebook post last night from Robbie Zacharias about this topic. Listen to what he said. Apologetics doesn't dominate our message. It undergirds our message. Argument doesn't save people, but it certainly clears the obstacles so they can take a direct look at the cross. Support the argument justifiably, recognizes it's Jesus you need to lift up, and it's the Holy Spirit who brings about change within the human heart. An argument may remove doubt, and the Holy Spirit convicts of truth. In other words, look back at verse 15. We're almost done. Our job is to simply defend what we believe. It helps to have Scripture and to talk about the confident assurance that we have in Christ so people want to trust Him too. Defending our faith eliminates doubts about our convictions and about our character. If people don't want to believe, that's up to them. But we want to be able to be zealous about the Lord and to explain to them, this is what I believe. And you know that I believe it. You know that it's true because you see my life matching it up at every step. The two are compatible. What I say and believe and what I do. There's no separation There's no lack of correlation. It is fully aligned together. And if you want to criticize me for that and you want to be skeptical, that's fine. But I'm telling you right now, it's not going to deter me. And if we should suffer for that, look at the last thought, verse 17. If we suffer for what we believe, and listen, our suffering is far lighter compared to what Christians in China and India and South Sudan and Egypt are dealing with this morning. But if we suffer, it is far greater to suffer for what's right than for what's wrong. Christ didn't die so we could go back to our degenerate, unsanctified lives. He died to save us so that we would have a new, sanctified, holy life. And he says, now that I've done that and now that you've received it, be zealous about it. Because my eyes are toward you. And I listen to your prayer. And I want you to be passionate and enthusiastic and fervent about doing what's right. And if people misunderstand you and they criticize you and they oppose you, don't get psyched out. I know what that's like. My own disciples turned on me. But stay the course and tell what I have done and give it all you have. That's our calling this morning. Not about you, but I want to be a zealot this week. I don't want to walk through this week and be mundane and boring and kind of, I want to be passionate for the Lord. Let's be passionate together. Let's close our eyes. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, you've challenged us to step out of the average. You've challenged us to live a different way. Lord, we know that the world in many ways hates you this morning, so by extension it's going to hate us. We know that there's continued and growing opposition to what we believe. We know that the word is trying to be silenced. But Lord... I pray that we will not be deterred by that and we will not be discouraged by that, that we will become more passionate and more fervent and more zealous for you as the days grow shorter. That our life would match our words, that our life would match our convictions and that we would be bold. Lord, may people see in our lives that we have been with you. Give us strength this week 
Help us, we pray. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.